In Christ Church, in just a minute, we're going to dive into God's Word and kind of explore the story of the resurrection. But before we do that, I, I just wanted to say a couple words. You know, um, even as we gather this morning in the midst of, or, or for the sake of celebrating the most significant and joyful day on the Christian calendar, celebrating the most significant event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus, we do so this week in the midst of a world that is marked by pain and sorrow, and there's some very difficult things happening in our world right now, as, as you all know. And I just want to let you know that we as a church in the midst of these difficult times are here for you. And so whether you're brand new to our community or you've been around here for a long time, uh, we have developed a care team uh, to meet the needs of people within our church family as well as within the broader community in which God has placed us here in Sierra Madre. And so if you have any needs whatsoever kind of in, in your life right now that have arisen as a result of COVID-19 and, and maybe the economic crisis that, that we're facing, please reach out to us. We would love to serve you in any way that we can. And if you're interested in kind of like letting us know whatever kind of needs you have, uh, go ahead and go to our website. And actually there's a web, or there's a page on there called COVID-19 Response. You can click on that. And there's just a little link down below that says, I need help. And just let us know. We'd love to meet your needs. Also wanted to let you know that there's some resources there for families. And so our children's ministry has put together some resources during this season. Uh, that are being sent out every week that hopefully provide some fun as well as some spiritual nourishment and enrichment uh, for your kids in the midst of, uh, you know, kind of this quarantine time and social isolation. And also, uh, we have some resources for youth, and our youth ministry uh, is meeting on Sundays and Wednesdays uh, via, I believe it's Zoom. And so, if, if you're interested in kind of connecting your students with other students uh, during this time of social isolation, again, visit our website. We'd love to to uh, connect with you in that way. And also, if you are in a place where you would like to serve, you've got resources, uh, there's a place for you as well. Uh, actually, on the COVID-19 response page, it just says, I would like to help. And I know there are so many of you that have already reached out to us and said, look, we'd love to serve, we'd love to help. What can we do? And just let us know. Click on that link and say, hey, I'd love to help. How can I help? And we'd love to show you some ways that you can help. I uh, also wanted to let you know that uh, for those of you who, who want to invest in the work that, that God has given us to do here, there's a way that you can easily give online, a secured, safe way to do that. Also, uh, you could also send your checks uh, to our church offices um, if you, if you want to give and support our work in that way. And so with that, I want to invite you just to pray with me wherever you are at and just ask that God would speak to us during this time. And so let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we pray that even as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak and that we would hear your voice and that in hearing your voice, we might be given hope and strength and courage to face these challenging times. And so speak to us now. We are here to listen. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. So I heard a story about a man who went on vacation to Israel with his wife and his always nagging, difficult to please mother-in-law. And while there, sadly, his mother-in-law passed away. And so he went to the undertaker to see what could be done about the body. And the undertaker said, look, he said, um, it'll cost you $10,000 to send her back to the U.S., but for just $500, we can have her buried right here in the Holy Land. 
And so the man thought about this for a while. He thought about it as difficult to please, always nagging mother-in-law. And he said, you know, um, I'll, I'll pay $10,000 to have her shipped back to the US. And the man said, did you hear what I said, sir? Uh, it's gonna cost you $10,000 to ship her back to the United States, but for just $500, you can have her buried right here in the Holy Land. And the man said, look, a very long time ago, there was a man who was buried here in the Holy Land, and three days later, he was raised from the dead, and I can't take that chance. So it turns out that not everyone finds the news of the resurrection comforting. And you know what's interesting? When you open up the pages of the Bible and you read the first accounts of the resurrection given to us in the biographies of Jesus, the first reaction, the very visceral response, the primal emotion associated with the resurrection is not comfort and it's not joy, it's fear, it's terror actually. And um, you know, so I, I, wanna, I wanna actually spend some time this morning talking to you about that first response of fear. And I want us to explore what it might teach us this morning. And my thesis this morning is simply this, that until you understand why the original reaction to the resurrection was fear and terror, you will never experience the resurrection as a source of great comfort and joy. Now, we're going to be looking at the account of the resurrection given to us in Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark. And so, if you have a Bible, you can open it with me there. If you don't have a Bible, I'm going to go ahead and be projecting it on the screen for you so you can kind of follow along with me there. But Mark is the earliest of the four biographies that we have about Jesus. He almost certainly got his information about Jesus from the Apostle Peter, who was a dear friend, an associate, a white, an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. And so what we're reading here is an eyewitness account of the story of Jesus, and it's given to us uh, from a very, very early source within just a couple decades of the life of Jesus. And so let's pick up the story in chapter 16, verse 1. It says this, and when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus's body. And very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, that when they were on their way to the tomb and stop there. So it says that the, the account of the resurrection happened when Sabbath was over. And so this is Sunday morning, it's very early, and this is Sunday after Good Friday, after actually horrible Friday, the day when Christ was hung on a cross to die. Now, oftentimes we think in our culture about a crucifixion or a cross as a religious symbol, you know, something that can be a piece of jewelry or maybe a tattoo that you get on your body or a nice thing that adorns the steeples in our churches. But in the first century, it was not a religious symbol. Uh, the crucifixion was a cruel and sadistic instrument of torture. I was looking this week at some images of the crucifixion, and this one struck me right over here because of how realistic it is in its depiction of the crucifixion in the first century. And then right next to it, uh, I came across these images, and they're actually uh, archaeological finds from the first century, and it's a nail going through uh, a foot. And I was thinking about that when I was looking at this, and I thought, you know, uh, nails being driven through the foot, somebody being pinned to a cross, that sounds like something that a sadistic murderer would do. But actually, this is something that the government was doing. The government was putting people on the cross. And why were they doing this? Well, it was to keep people in their place. 
And so they would hang these crucifixions uh, all throughout thoroughfares around Rome to basically say to people loud and clear, here's what will happen to you if you defy Rome. And so Jesus was taken basically handed over to the authorities as something of a revolutionary, and he was hung on a cross to die. And the women who come to the tomb on early Sunday morning were the same women that were there at the foot of the cross. You know, it's interesting in the Gospels, all of the men forsake Jesus and they flee at the foot of the cross, but not the women. The women are there at the foot of the cross on Friday. They are there to first be at the tomb on Sunday morning. And the women actually become the very first people that are commissioned by Jesus to be preachers of the gospel, uh, to be preachers of this good news that God had raised Jesus from the dead. But no doubt when these women went to the tomb, they had their Im these images of Jesus crucified seared into their minds. And no doubt these images haunted their dreams on Friday nights and all night Saturday and they woke up on Sunday morning after a, an uneasy night of sleep and they go to the tomb. Now question, why is it that they are going to the tomb? Well, to state the obvious, they're not going to the tomb to find a resurrected Messiah. You see, these women know what most all of us know, and that's that dead people don't raise from the dead. And so they went to the tomb, the text tells us, in order to anoint the body with spices. And actually, if you dig down into the original Greek, the word spices uh, is the Greek word doTERRA. And uh, I'm just kidding, it's not really doTERRA. I just thought I'd throw that out there for those of you who do buy expensive spices and oils and such from doTERRA. But they go to the tomb early on Sunday morning to anoint a dead corpse with spices before decay sets in. And in the first century, uh, this kind of thing was an act of preservation for the body. And it was also certainly an act of closure for those who are grieving. And so these women who are distraught and devastated, they go to the tomb to anoint the dead corpse of Jesus. But as often happens when we're disillusioned, when we're traumatized when we're struck down with grief and we haven't been sleeping well, we get disoriented and we forget details. Now, some of us forget details even when we're not disoriented and traumatized. Uh, some of us are given lists by uh, our spouses uh, that we take to the market with us and it doesn't matter how many times we've looked at the list, we forget details. But these women forgot a major detail. And look at what it says in the text. And as they were going to the tomb, they said to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And so in their grief, you know, they, they start kicking themselves because they're like, we're going to the tomb. Who's going to roll the stone away? Now, this is an image of uh, what many people to be, believe to be the very tomb that Jesus was buried in. It's just outside of Jerusalem. And it, it's in the right location. It fits the descriptions from the biographies of Jesus. And maybe it was and maybe it wasn't. But Jesus was placed in a tomb like this one. And most of the tombs in the ancient world were cut out of soft limestone, which was very common in the area. And very often, the, the door, the entrance to the tomb was covered with a square or a rectangular stone. 
But sometimes, uh, for the very wealthy, uh, they would actually have a round stone that they would use levers, kind of a technological device in the first century, that they could roll the stone in front of the entrance. And this actually is a rolling, it's called the Rolling Stone Tomb uh, from Galilee, and it's an original uh, Rolling Stone Tomb, and this is a Rolling Stone from um, <laughs> our day. And I was just thinking that if I were Mick Jagger, I would want to be buried in a tomb with a rolling stone. I mean, wouldn't you? That would just make sense. It's like the good logical sense. But they go to this tomb, and when they get there, the stone has already been rolled away. And look at what it says in the text. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Uh, many of these, these stones were anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000 pounds. And you can imagine them thinking like, how are we going to get this stone rolled away? But they, they get there and it's already been rolled away. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And, and look at what it says. And the angel said to them, or the, the young man sitting there who was an angel, said to them, do not be alarmed. Now, could you imagine if you were the angelic messenger who was given this task? I mean, uh, maybe I imagine it says he was a young man. Maybe he's a recent grad from angel training school. And no doubt he's kind of been thinking through his mind, like, how am I going to approach these women when they come? You know, he's thinking, like, do I say, hey, how's it going? You know, what's up? No, no, no. And they th no, don't be alarmed. That's what I'll say. And so he says, don't be alarmed. Now, why are they alarmed? Well, you would be alarmed too, wouldn't you? You go to a tomb to anoint a dead corpse and the tomb is empty and there's an angelic being there saying, don't be alarmed, you would be freaked out. But what he says really freaks him out because he says this, he says, don't be alarmed, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he said to you. And if they were alarmed, if they were freaked out before, they are really freaked out right now. Because now the angel is telling them, the risen Jesus is going to meet you. And so they're incredibly freaked out. And look at what it says. And they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. It's interesting, there's multiple statements about the emotional state of the first disciples who discovered the empty tomb in this text. And not one of them has anything to do with comfort or joy. Isn't that fascinating? The primary response, in fact, the only response that's given to us in the Gospel of Mark is a response of great fear and terror. And so I just wanna to talk to you for a minute about this fear and terror and just raise this question, why are the women afraid? You know, it was H.P. Lovecraft in a great book about supernatural terror and horror who wrote this. He said, the oldest and the strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is the fear of the unknown. Why are these women afraid? Because here in the empty tomb of Jesus, they are meeting something that is way, way, way outside of their categories. It is strange, it is transcendent, it is wholly other, and their first reaction to it is terror. They don't know what to think. You know, it's interesting, in the ancient world, there were many known fears. 
There are many things that, that they knew about that they should be afraid of. You know, the ancient world was a brutal place. If you walk down the average road in the Roman Empire with your children, at some point you would walk by with your children crucified people as if to say, look, this is what's going to happen to you if you disobey Rome to make them live in fear. And of course, women had no rights in that culture. They could be abused and taken advantage of. There was much known fears in the first century. But here, what strikes these women is not the fear of the known. It is the fear of the unknown. It is because here they are encountering something that is so different, so strange, so wonderful, so outside of their categories that it freaks them out. And listen, Easter is about a lot of things. It is about choirs, it's about lilies and new dresses and chocolate bunnies and egg hunts and peeps. But at its rock bottom, at its base, before Easter is about anything else, it is about a strange outside of our categories event in human history. Jesus of Nazareth, who was put through the rigors of crucifixion, who died and was buried in a tomb, three days later was raised bodily and physically from the dead. And this is the news that at first rocked their world. It is what caused them to tremble at the tomb. And now what I want to do is I just want to stand back and I, and I want us just to reflect upon this from two different places that you might find yourself and the first place in which I want to reflect on this trembling, this fear that these women felt at the tomb, is you might be in a place right now of skepticism. And so I want you to see the fear of the women, number one, is a challenge to the skeptical. So I don't know, many of you might know this because you've been around the block, uh, maybe you've encountered other Christians who've maybe shared with you what they call a historical case for the resurrection. And some of you may know this, there is actually an academically rigorous historical argument that can be made for the resurrection of Jesus. And the historical argument is grounded in sound research, it's written about in peer-reviewed journals, and it is put forward by some of the brightest minds who've taught courses at Oxford and Cambridge and Duke and Harvard. And the historical argument, like all historical arguments, works by way of best explanation. And it, it begins really with a question. And the question is this, why was it that in the first biographers of Jesus, why is it that the, in, when you look at the message of early Christianity, why is it that at the heart of these stories and at the heart of their message is the announcement that the tomb of Jesus was found empty and that Jesus had been raised from the dead? That's a question that historians ask. Why was it that Christians were saying these things? And so in the historical argument, they basically draw all of the data together, you know, and, and they, they research this and they kind of bring it together and they say, look, uh, the best explanation for all of the data is that it actually happened, that God actually raised Jesus from the dead. And you can Google this and you can read and listen to debates about this, but there really is a, a sound, a rigorous academic historical argument to be made and many have put it forward. In fact, uh, one of the most well-known proponents of the historical argument is a scholar in our day named N.T. Wright and he wrote this mammoth 
1,200 book, 1,200 page book uh, on the resurrection where he examines the, you know, all of the evidence and uh, he's taught at Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and he's a bright individual. But the sum total of his, of his work, he said this, this is kind of like the summation uh, of what his work is. He says, look, what happened in the first century that gave rise to the belief of early Christianity? And he says this, he says, at this moment, all of the signposts are pointing in one direction. And then he says this, I and others have studied all of the alternative explanations, ancient and modern, for the rise of the early church and for the shape of its belief. And far and away, the best historical explanation is that Jesus of Nazareth, having been thoroughly dead and buried, really was raised to life on the third day with a renewed body. And so he says, look, you do the academic rigorous work. And he says, the best explanation for uh, the rise of early Christianity, for the shape of its belief, is that it actually happened that God raised Jesus from the dead, which raises a question. If this is the best historical explanation, then why is it that more people don't believe in the resurrection? Why is it that sometimes you have a hard time believing in the resurrection? Well, can I state the obvious? It's because it's impossible. <laughs> All people die and dead people stay dead. I mean, what could be more certain than that? You know, uh, scientific studies, historical analysis, they operate on the principle of analogy, which is to say this, that if you are gonna give an explanation of something in the past, it has to have an analogous kind of situation as something that happens in the present. You can't have some weird, strange, one-off explanation for something in the past that no one knows about in the present. And, and what, what people say is, look, look, this is not the best explanation because resurrections don't happen. But listen, here's what I want you to see from the fear of the women. This was just as much outside of their categories as it is outside of your categories and mine. This was just as far away from any kind of analogous situation that they had ever experienced as it is for you. And that is why they were so terrified and shaken at the tomb of Jesus. Or let me put it like this. You know, in the, in the early church, you know, when they were looking for analogies to what they experienced in the resurrection of Jesus, they couldn't draw any up. Uh, now, somebody says, well, isn't there other stories in the Bible of uh, people who, who seem to have died, but then they were raised back to life? And aren't there even stories today of people who maybe flatline in the hospital and they're prayed over and they come back to life? And certainly there are those stories. And in fact, there was a movie made in this last year called Breakthrough, which was about a little boy who broke through some ice and uh, he went into cardiac arrest and, and he basically died. He flatlined for, for several, several hours. And then uh, after his mother prayed for him, he came back to life in the hospital and he didn't have any brain damage. And there are other well-documented kind of medical stories of things like that. But the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is not like those stories. It's not analogous to them. Uh, for one, Jesus wasn't laying in a hospital bed uh, attached to a bunch of medical devices. Jesus had actually been thoroughly dead on a cross. And to make sure a Roman guard came up with a spear and thrust it through his side, likely going up and puncturing his heart and blood and water came out. And then he was put in a cold, dark tomb. 
And then after he was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead never to die again. And so the New Testament authors, they said, look, this is once, it, like, this is a one-off. This is something without precedent in history. And the only analogy that they could come up with, like the best one they had was the original creation. And they said it was like in the tomb of Jesus, a new creation began. Only in the original creation, by God's power and by God's word, he brought all things into being. In the new creation, God is undoing the power of sin and death and darkness that has infected his good world. And so this, the New Testament author said, was an act of new creation. And so let me just ask you this simple question. You know, maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you doubt this. If you're there, I get it. I understand you. I, I feel doubts myself sometimes. I can be skeptical myself sometimes. But listen, I just want to raise this question and just invite you to ponder this. What if it is the case that this universe is not closed? I know as post-enlightenment people, we are taught to believe that the universe is closed, that we are simply, you know, un unfolding as this endless succession of cause and effect so that every effect in the world, whether it be, you know, boiling water or a volcano or a rainstorm or uh, a great symphony from Bach or whatever, it has some naturalistic cause to it. Every effect has a naturalistic cause and we're just this endless succession of cause and effect and that the universe is closed. But the question that the resurrection of Jesus and the claims about the resurrection put to us is what if the universe is not closed but open to that infinite mystery, the eternal source of love and power and existence and beauty? And what if this great mystery, the infinite source of all that is, what if he actually did act in human history to undo the forces of injustice and darkness and death so that everything could be made new? And what if that power that acted to undo sin in the resurrection of Jesus, what if that news began to spread and began to transform the world? And, and what if that news became such a powerful force that on this day in every continent, in every nation, among every people, people actually celebrated this news because they had experienced this power in their life? That would be good news indeed, wouldn't it? It would be good news indeed. And so some of you are skeptical, and so I just want to put to you that simple question, but some of you, you're not maybe in a, in a place where you're feeling skeptical, but this also is not only a challenge to the skeptical, it's also a challenge to the scared. It's a, it's a challenge to those of you who might be feeling fearful. Now, I know there's a lot of good reasons for us to be feeling fear right now. You know, some of us are worried about the economy. Uh, we're worried about our future. We're worried about our health. We're worried about our neighbors and our friends and family members. We're worried about all kinds of things. There's a lot of things that can create fear in us, but that's not the fear that I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about the fear that is actually created in this story of the resurrection, and it's the fear that there actually is a power that is infinite and eternal and that is at work in this world. There is a power uh, at work in this universe that the universe is not closed, but it's open to a power bigger than you and outside of you. 
And this can be scary because that means that this power may actually demand something of you. It may actually call forth your allegiance. Now, I guess on one level, the idea that the universe is open, it's not closed is good news because it also means your life is not closed. Your life can be open to the power and the love of God so that God can change you. This is good news indeed. You know, because some of you, 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 you don't just feel scared, you actually feel stuck. And I wonder how many of you have ever felt like just things are never going to change. And some of you, you know, those voices that things will never change are constant. And you just think the way things are is the way things will always be. And so let's say that you come from a family with a history of dysfunction and abuse and that voice says you will continue on the legacy and you will pass it on to your children. Or maybe you're predisposed to depression and addiction because of your genetics or some traumatic childhood experience and the voice says, good luck, you're bound to act out your biology. Or maybe you're trapped in a pattern of failed relationships and that voice says, get used to it, you're never gonna move on from it and develop intimacy and trust. Or maybe you're plagued with guilt about the past or anxiety about the future, or you're just uncomfortable in your own skin, and the voice says, sorry, that is just the way it is. And I wonder how many of you are familiar with those voices. They are strong, and they are relentless, and they haunt many of us. And yet there was a new voice that traveled out from that tomb so long ago, and it's made its way through the ages, across the continents, and into the 21st century, into Los Angeles, and Pasadena, and even into Sierra Madre, and into your living rooms. And that voice said this, Jesus Christ can change your life. Jesus can change your life. Your life, the situations in your life is not close, but it's open to his power, and to his love because three days later after he was put to death, a new power was let loose in the world, a creative power to break into this old creation. A new kingdom broke into the kingdom of death and darkness and began to reorder and recreate and make everything resurrection new. And so Jesus can change your life. Jesus can change your life. Anybody need your life changed? Jesus can change your life if, if you let him. And this is where the good news becomes scary because letting Jesus change your life means that you relinquish the power and control of your life over to somebody else. A couple weeks ago, I started teaching my second oldest daughter, Mia, how to drive. And uh, we went over to a parking lot over at the mall. It was fantastic. Nobody's at the mall. There's uh, some benefit to that. We went over there and we're driving around in the parking lot. But, you know, I pulled up into the parking lot. It was my first opportunity driving with her. And there was something very scary about getting out of the driver's seat and letting go of the steering wheel and putting somebody else in charge. And listen, that's true for your life as well, isn't it? Many of you, 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 you maybe don't like the way your life is going. You don't like the way you feel. Uh, you don't like being addicted. You don't like to be under the power and control of your own hatred and your bitterness and your anger. Uh, you don't like the way your marriage is going. Uh, you don't like yourself sometimes. But at least you have this. You are in control of you. But if Jesus is gonna step in and change your life, if the power of the resurrection is gonna come into your life, then you need to let go of the steering wheel of your life and you need to let Jesus take control.
You need to relinquish power and control in your life to Jesus, and that can be scary. And why is that scary? Well, because when somebody has so much power, what are they going to do? What might they do? What might they ask you to do? And if you're not in charge anymore, like what's going to happen next? And, and there's something fearful about that. But here is the good news that the, the angel announced to the women that day. He said, you see Jesus who was crucified. You see, the one who holds infinite power over sin and death is also the one who came into this world to lay down his life fully and unreservedly for you on a cross. The one who holds all power also is the one who is loving. And when you relinquish your life into his control, he will not mess it up. He knows what he's doing. He loves you. He's not gonna dominate and control you. He's gonna empower you to live a fully human life. Jesus says, I have come so that you might have life and that to the full. Would you like life? Would you like change? Jesus says, I can change you, but you need to relinquish your life into my hands. You know, I don't know why I was thinking about this this morning, but I was thinking about Jesus' power to change life, and I started to think about my mom. And if you met my mom today, uh, you would think my mom, she, she's one of the just strongest, uh, happiest, uh, you know, sufficient, strong, and godly, and, and just incredible women I know. She, she's a champion. But you know, if you knew my mom's story as a little girl, you wouldn't expect for her to turn out the way she did. When my mom was four years old, her dad died of cancer. And then her mom remarried, and she remarried a physician who had this wonderful bedside manner. But when he got drunk, he was a mean and abusive drunk. My mom tells me stories of coming downstairs as a small child and her, her stepfather has, a, has his wristwatch around his fist and he's beating up my grandmother. Now, my mom at that point, you know, as she's grown up in her life, she could have, you know, what do you do? Like she could have succumbed to the power of this dysfunctional home and it could have dominated and controlled her. And she could have actually wound up marrying an abusive person and stayed comfortable in that same pattern. She could have narcoticized her pain and turned to alcohol or drugs to try to forget. But when my mom was 19 years old, Jesus stepped into her life and Jesus changed her. And listen, Jesus can change your life. And I, I think right now for some of you, this is a moment that God might be speaking to you and he might be calling you right now to let go of the reins of your life and entrust your life to a power and a love that is strong and that is beautiful and that has acted in human history to defeat all of your sin and all of your fear of death. Jesus has acted and he offers his grace and his forgiveness to you if you will reach out and receive it. And this morning, as you are in your homes, maybe you're sitting on your couch, it doesn't matter where you are at, God is present with you. And I wanna invite you just here and now to relinquish the reins of your life into God's hands and to commit yourself to him and to let the risen Jesus be the one who actually 
leads you and empowers you and enables you to become your full and your true self that God has for you. This time, I want to invite our band to come up and I'm just going to pray over us. And if you are in this place in your life where you feel like I need a change, I need a resurrection, I just want to invite you into a space where you turn your life over to God in prayer. And the Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I just want to invite you in this moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I'm just going to invite you to to turn your heart, your life into the hands of God and allow him to take control. Let's pray together. God, I pray right now for all of those who might be in a space where they are hearing your voice calling to them and maybe they've been wrestling with their own fears and anxieties right now and they need you to break into their life. And I pray, God, for all of those who want you right now, who who want to call out to you right now, I just pray that you would let them know that you are present to them. And if that's you, you would like to call out to God right now, I just want to invite you to pray these words after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I know that I need you. I have made a mess of my life and I am tired. And I want you to take leadership in my life, become my master, become my king, become my savior and rescue me. And if you call out to Jesus with those words, he is present to you and he hears you. And if that's you, we just invite you even now to enter into the chat room, let one of the pastors know uh, that you've made a decision to follow Jesus. But he has heard you and he loves you.